The coronavirus has hit hard. Our hospitals are reaching capacity, businesses of all sizes are suffering, and stock markets have plummeted. So today, I've reached out to Alex Vinicor. He's the CEO and founder of BetaShares, and he's well-placed to help us understand the market impact of this health disaster and what we can expect in coming months. BetaShares is only 10 years old, but it pioneered the use of ETFs or exchange-traded funds here in Australia. It made investing into diversified funds much more accessible to those who may not have as much capital, and they have a suite of ethical and sustainable funds that they manage through their own investment committee. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and whether financial markets will ever be the same again. Alex is a businessman and he's a fund manager. He's been deep in the Australian financial sector for a long time, so I value his views on the reaction that we've seen from the public, the government and markets to the corona crisis. We talked about the impacts ETFs have had on investing over the past decade and also how resilient they've proved to be in a major correction. Now Alex and I spoke over video link as is customary these days, so please excuse the bumps in the audio. I fear it'll be a little while until I'm back in the studio. And if you have any questions or feedback, send them through on my website. I'm always keen to hear your views. The website's at johntreadgold.com. And that's also where you'll find all the show notes as well. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Alex Vinicor. Here we go. All right, Alex, thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm sure you're very busy. It's been a crazy week in markets, a crazy month in markets. But let's start with the issue everybody is focused on. The coronavirus has overrun our hospitals. Economies are all all but shut down and stock markets have seen big falls. What's the impact been on you and, and your business in the past month? Well, look, John, I think first and foremost, clearly, coronavirus is a real health and human tragedy. The number of people getting sick around the world and the number of lives lost, that's obviously not something that um, many of us had really thought about as a risk. Not many people realized just how fragile the system really is and how ill-equipped it is to deal with the global pandemic. So first and foremost, obviously, my thoughts um, go out, obviously, to all the victims, and we've still got a long way to go. You're right in saying, obviously, that the market volatility has been caused by coronavirus or induced by coronavirus. That's also been quite a difficult thing to watch basically and observe because so many so many investors are watching their superannuation balances in Australia or pension balances around the world reduce in size. And a number of people of course are expressing concern and, and calling and, and wondering sort of what it all means for their for their livelihood. This is where it's really important to take a step back and really have a bit of a think about you know what it all means. And and clearly the tragedy of coronavirus is a tragedy, but it is a temporary shock to the system. It's not going to be a long-term problem. Society is resilient, and, and we as humans are very resilient and very creative in solving problems. So I've got absolutely no doubt about the fact that you know vaccine will be developed. Australian government has been exceptionally good to date, I would observe, in really dealing with the consequences of coronavirus from an economic uh, standpoint. And that's certainly given some comfort um, you know, to the markets as well. Australian market, like always, takes a lead from global markets, from the US in particular. But um, the way our governments is going about uh, providing a cushion for those that have lost a job, 
and providing some comfort to the businesses that are suffering pretty significantly as a result of the impact has been quite admirable. Our business, I'll probably say that beta shares and, and investment business generally, you know, we're pretty fortunate. And our business in particular, we, we've been very, very fortunate in the sense that, that we have a, a solid business, uh, which is very well diversified across asset classes. Um, so equities represent, you know, sort of about 40% of our assets under management. Uh, fixed income um, represents about 40% of assets under management. And the other 20 would be uh, what we call um, alternatives, basically, which would include things like gold, things like bear funds, and, and, and a few other sort of exposures. So we have come into this um, crisis very well diversified and very well prepared, you know, with a very clean balance sheet, um, you know, with no debt and lots of cash, um, you know, sort of on the balance sheet. So we, as a business, have actually not been affected by coronavirus, but each one of us has, has families and each one of us obviously have, have friends you know, so we've seen firsthand, um, you know, what it's like to be doing a tough. Has there been anything that has surprised you about, about the reaction from, you know, from the public, maybe from the government or, or even from the markets? Yes. Well, look, there've been a few things that are surprising. I guess the well-documented fights that people have had over the basics, over toilet paper, uh, had really surprised me. You know, I'm an immigrant myself. I came 26 years ago uh, to Australia from Ukraine, and, and this is well and truly my home now. And, um, you know, we were growing up in a pretty poor country, and, you know, we went through Chernobyl, basically, which was a real sort of human tragedy as well in its own way. I've never seen people, you know, sort of fight over basics. And I think that widespread hoarding, I mean, I'd like to think that, that those are, you know, sort of a small minority of people that were engaging in that sort of uh, behavior, but uh, that definitely was not a nice surprise. I mentioned the response from the Australian government. I think it's been really positive that the government and, and people in general have responded in an embracing way, in a way which actually seeks to go above and beyond and help those that have lost their job through no fault of their own. I think that has been a positive. And again, we can always do better. We can always do more. But I would say that the measures that our government has taken to date go so much further than, um, than say, the market like you know the U.S., which is sort of um, at this point in time has just given people sort of a one-off check of $1,200 and said, hey, you know, good luck, you know, dealing with this. I think the, the latest measure in particular of providing a partial subsidy of people's salary has been really, um, you know, welcomed. And I'm also very fortunate with what I do to be able to be involved with, with some non-for-profits as well. And, um, you know, one of the non-for-profits that I'm involved in I mean, we just had a board meeting earlier today and talked about, um, you know, having to unfortunately make some tough decisions and, you know, stand down a few, a few members of staff, which again, fortunately, we haven't had to consider in, in, and, and don't have to consider in the contents of beta shares. But I've, I've, I've been in those tough conversations, um, you know, as recently as earlier today. And then on the markets, the market behavior has not really been surprising. I mean, markets tend to be driven, as you would have heard many times, you know, by fear and greed. And unfortunately, the greed that we have seen over the past few years of people chasing returns and, and as recently as January and early February of this year, where markets were still making all-time highs and um, a lot of um, smart people were making the observation that the markets are getting irrational and a little bit too far ahead of themselves, that greed was replaced with fear in very, very quick order. And people have started racing for the door. And that's, of course, what caused the markets to, um, you know, sort of to melt down. So that's probably not that, not that surprising. I think what probably has been surprising is just the speed with which the greed gave way to fear and the speed in which the markets have corrected. And, of course, the speed with which the economy 
both in Australia and globally, has really ground to, to a halt. That's been, A, surprising, but, but also, um, B, unprecedented. Well, that's it. I think we certainly were overdue for a correction. And for me, something I've talked about recently in a bunch of these podcasts is the fact that interest rates have been kept low since the GFC. Central banks were never quite able to normalise them. And now in this next crisis, they're left with very little firepower. So how do you think this will play out going forward when when interest rates are almost pretty much at zero? (laughs) Certainly introduces a special set of challenges. It's definitely not the same, even for a market like Australia, where interest rates have actually been relatively high. And relatively, of course, is a very much a relative term. Big parts of uh, the world have negative interest rates. The dry powder is just simply not there. And that's one of the reasons why monetary stimulus is simply not enough. Monetary policy is is, is only uh, one element. I think fiscal stimulus becomes so much more important. But uh, in that context, I mean, the the game of printing money around the world is a very tricky one. I mean, on the one hand, there is absolutely no choice. And again, the governments, I mean, I was obviously just talking a second ago about how good it's been to see Australian government respond so quickly and so big. I mean, we have seen situations with the global financial crisis and some of the other crises in the past, and some of the people have been drawing parallel to the Spanish flu in the 1918, 1919 and onwards. And the fact that the central banks and the governments have actually contributed so much to the Great Depression, basically, that that has been caused by that or as a result of that. And I think the central bankers around the world and the governments around the world have learned the lessons that, you know, if you're going to go, you might as well go early, basically. So I think the fact that the governments are, are, are going big and going early is, is a positive in, in, in the one sense, in that you are, you know, you're trying to avoid, uh, you know, the short-term pain uh, that otherwise, you know, nobody really knows, you know, the consequences of, of not doing that. But of course, the flip side of that is that you're starting to, to pile on, um, you know, more problems onto the existing problems, you know, that the economy has been, has been facing already. You know, we have so many economies around the world which have already been printing so much money. The experiment continues in that regard. Now, Alex, it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about beta shares. Uh, you guys are an Australian outfit that have a whole range of ETFs, exchange-traded funds. So if you could tell us a little bit about where you guys came from and, and the, the growth of ETFs, in Australia, and I think my my audience will be interested in your sustainable investing opportunities and, and ESG funds. So maybe you could use those as an example. Absolutely, John. Well, look, um, you know, first of all, I might just spend um, a few moments describing what ETFs really are, because um, you know, very few of your listeners will be as nerdy as as I am. So, exchange traded funds are managed funds which are trade like shares. Um, in essence. By saying managed funds, um, it means that they're they're investment funds uh, which invest in portfolios of uh, securities. Those securities can be Australian shares, that can be global shares, or that could be bonds and other fixed income securities, as as an example. Traditionally, investors invest in managed funds by filling out an application form, quite often a paper application form, um, that they have to print out in the in the prospectus or PDS product disclosure statements, as sometimes it's described. And what exchange traded funds do is is enable uh, investors to to get the benefits of managed fund investing, uh, which is diversification and um, avoiding having to pick individual shares or individual bonds, um, you know, to buy, with the ease of buying and selling a share. So so exchange traded funds, unlike a normal um, or traditional managed fund. Uh, can simply be bought and sold on exchange like a share. 
That's really uh, a big benefit, of course, because it's a lot more convenient than having to print out forms and, and fill them out and scan them and fax them. ETFs tend to be index uh, funds. So in addition to being convenient and easy to buy and sell, it also carries the benefit of lower cost than traditional actively managed funds. Indexing has been around for a long time. ETFs have been around for decades, even in Australia, where, where ETFs have been relatively unknown until the last decade. ETFs have actually been around, um, you know, sort of for over 20 years. So BetaShares started just over a decade ago, and I was uh, fortunate enough to have met um, a couple of really capable people that have helped me, you know, build this business, um, you know, from scratch. So we started just over 10 years ago. My background prior to starting BetaShares has been in financial services as well. So I've been fortunate enough to have an opportunity to grow and build uh, some really interesting businesses in the financial services space. And the opportunity was, was pretty clear. Obviously, starting a business always carries a lot of risk. And clearly, uh, starting BetaShares had quite a bit of risk. But the opportunity was, um, you know, was phenomenal. Um, we were coming out you know, of the GFC. A significant number of Australian investors have found out the hard way that having poorly diversified investment portfolios is not a good thing. Uh, you can really pay the price of, of, of not being well diversified. And um, in Australia, we had a very large cohort of self-directed investors who went into the global financial crisis just with a handful of, of uh, Australian shares, shares that they were considered blue chip, and then a bit of cash along the, you know, sort of on the side. Um, and maybe, you know, sort of uh, some people had an investment property as well. But those portfolios were very poorly diversified. And when the GFC hit, investors suffered very significant losses um, you know, of up to 50% of their investment portfolios. To me, as I was sitting through the GFC, you know, the one thing that became very apparent is that we need to get better, uh, we need to get smarter as Australians and how we're going to be managing our retirement savings. So whether you're a young person who's just getting started in investing or whether you are an older self-managed superannuation fund trustee who's got a bit more money in their savings uh, account, uh, on, in their superannuation account, we have to smarten up. And um, ETFs to me were a real opportunity to democratize investing, to have a diversified portfolio of 50 stocks, 100 stocks a decade ago, two decades ago, you had to have um, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to get access to that. Whereas what ETFs really bring to the table to investors is ability to invest like a sophisticated institution without having to have large uh, balances, basically, in your, in your investment account. You know, that's really been the motivating factor uh, in starting the business. And we have launched since, since starting BetaShares, as I was saying, uh, back in 2010, we have launched now um, over 60 different exchange-traded funds. So um, if you go into our website, betashares.com.au, um, you'll be able to see a variety of exposures from Australian shares to international shares to fixed income to currencies to commodities. There's a real breadth of offering. And what we have seen over the past decade is um, investors smartening up and being able to build their portfolios a lot more robustly so that when we do have the calamity in the markets that coronavirus has uh, induced, investors are actually much better placed to weather the storm because they are much more diversified you know, across their share portfolios, but also quite importantly, diversified into other asset classes, um, which often have uh, no correlation or sometimes negative correlation. And correlation meaning that 
that those portfolios can move sometimes in different directions or the value of those portfolios will move in different directions when the market falls. So those have been real, um, you know, real positives. So for an Australian investor, say with our NASDAQ 100 ETF, we have a lot of young investors who love technology and, and we as Australians are consumers of, of a lot of those technologies. To be able to buy one share on the ASX to give them exposure to, you know, to the NASDAQ 100 stocks is really sort of part of that democratization journey. And um, you touched, uh, John, earlier on the ethical investing space which has really been quite, um, you know, sort of quite interesting from our perspective, um, you know, sort of to observe how fast the rate of adoption, you know, sort of has been. That really has been quite amazing. So we have launched our first fund in the ethical suite, which is trading on the ASX under the uh, ticker EFI. It's called the Bitesh's uh, Global Sustainability Leaders uh, ETF. And that fund is providing Australian investors with an exposure to 100 large global stocks, which are climate change leaders and which are not materially engaged uh, in activities which are deemed inconsistent with responsible uh, investment considerations. To be able to offer that to investors and to do all the legwork and all the screening and to allow investors to be able to access a portfolio like that as easily as buying a share on the ASX is, is really an exciting bit uh, for us about growing and building a business like this. So for me, when I look at it now, you know, we're super fortunate, obviously, to be in the position we are our business is managing over 10 billion in assets now. Uh, we have a very, very talented and dedicated team of people, which I'm, I'm so proud of. But for us to be able to deliver investment solutions to our clients and to deliver that uh, in a cost competitive way and in a way which is transparent so people can go on our website every day and can actually download uh, a list of holdings for each of the funds uh, that we're talking about. So for example, for EFI, for the Global Sustainability Leaders ETF, an investor can actually go in and have complete transparency, basically, not only to the value of their investments, but also to know specifically where their money is actually invested, which company uh, we hold in the portfolio and why. That's really an exciting bit about ETFs. And, and that's why the industry has been growing at a rate of 40, 50% per annum over so many years. It's quite exciting, obviously, from our perspective, and we feel there's still a long way to go. And Alex, that Global Sustainability Leaders ETF, does that track an index or is that your own list of 100? That fund tracks an index, and the index methodology is available also on our website. The index is called the NASDAQ Future Global Sustainability Leaders ETF. The index methodology is quite sophisticated. It looks not just at companies that are climate change leaders. So it excludes companies, for example, which have material involvement in the fossil fuel space. But it's also got additional eligibility exclusion screens, which are gambling and tobacco and armaments and animal cruelty, human rights and supply chain, um, you know, sort of issues. But it's also got positive screening as well. So quite proactively allocating towards companies which are, which are contributing positively to the society and to the environment. So the methodology is, is quite detailed, but ultimately it results in a portfolio of 100 global leaders in the sustainability space. And it's definitely seen quite a significant level of adoption, uh, both from the institutional investor base, as well as advisor and retail. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I read, I remember, I'm not sure if it was last year or the year before that, that you guys chose to take Facebook off some of those portfolios. That's an interesting one because it, I guess it pushes against the passive, the idea that it's just passive, that you guys don't really make the decisions that just follows the index and that that was more what a managed fund would do. And, th and this kind of fits 
in between those two, I guess, approaches. Could you sort of talk to us about how those decisions are made? Yes, no, of course. Um, so the Responsible Investment Committee, which is which is really overseeing the governance of the index for FE and, and also some of the other ethical products, ethical ETFs that we manage, the Ethical Investment Committee is tasked with observing and monitoring the portfolio. And one of the critical tasks is also to review on an ongoing basis the definition of what's sustainable and what's ethical. If you rewind, um, you know, 50 years ago, you and I would both be of the view that tobacco companies are ethical because there was certainly no proof, uh, there was no scientific proof that smoking kills and smoking is bad and companies that are promoting smoking or manufacturing cigarettes are unethical companies. So I think what's really important about, about having a, a committee of people and not just relying on data is to really make judgments as to what's ethical in our society uh, and what isn't. And the case, um, you know, with Facebook is very much the case in point. If you asked me the question 20 years ago, whether personal data and the usage of personal data would be an ethical question, I would never have guessed that. And probably you would never have guessed that either. But what we have observed, of course, is that our lives are moving into the cloud uh, more and more and personal information is moving into the cloud more and more. And there are businesses which are essentially making a living um, and have at the very core of their business model, the usage of that data. And we certainly, or the Ethical Investment Committee, had felt that uh, Facebook had really overstepped the mark in monetizing individuals' data in a way uh, which was not consistent with responsible you know, investment principles. And that's why the recommendation was made to remove Facebook from the from the index. And that's why the, the ETF divested um, you know, from Facebook as a result. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's a really interesting point. And obviously, um, at the heart of what we try to, to dig through on this podcast, I mean, do you think would that decision fall more in a, in a risk factor or, or a, a sort of an ethical values side? I think it's on the ethical value side and risk side both. I think, I think clearly, I mean, there is a risk element to it. Uh, no question about that. But ultimately, when individuals choose to share, you know, sort of their private information, you know, there is an understanding that that information, you know, will be kept confidential and will be kept private. And if not, there will be some upfront disclosure that's made around monetization or disclosure of that, of that private uh, and personal information. It is not good enough, basically, to be operating in the shadows of disclosure and to be anything but upfront about those issues. Um, so I think it, it is absolutely also a source of risk, but but I think it's also not consistent with what we regard to be, you know, responsible investment principles. You know, one of the changes that we have implemented in our ethical funds, and again, this is for the Global Sustainability Leaders ETF, EFI, as well as Australian Sustainability Leaders ETF, uh, FAIR, is uh, gender diversity. Gender diversity is a, is a major issue. We have actually annoyed quite a few companies that have been excluded specifically because they do not have female representation on the boards. So again, we, we certainly feel that um, it is important uh, you know, to take a stance on those issues because it, it matters uh, a lot to our clients. And I think ultimately it matters you know, a lot for the economy going forward. Yeah, I'd love to touch on, on what you just said there about what matters to your clients. Is there a, is there a feedback sort of mechanism where you find out what really does matter to your clients. You know, you touched on on privacy um, and, and gender being a couple of, of issues. What are some other issues and, and how do you sort of find out what your, your clients are interested in? We certainly think it's very important to keep finger on the pulse 
as to what is important. So, you know, we talked about things like animal cruelty to our clients. I mean, fossil fuels, of course, goes without saying. Uh, alcohol and junk foods, all of those are pretty important issues. And that might change uh, from time to time. Um, we need to stay close to our investors and we need to understand, you know, what is important and what, um, you know, what matters. In that regard, we have a significant number of clients who write in or call and express their views, and we definitely take them pretty seriously. Uh, we also, on a regular basis, uh, proactively reach out to our clients and ask them for their opinions to make sure that we don't fall behind. This is really a key, a key risk um, that any business faces and, and one that I'm very much focused on making sure that we don't fall into the trap of, of sitting in a, you know, sort of in a nice office in the CBD and start making judgment calls as to what's important to our clients and what's not. I think our clients are always going to be the best arbiters of what's, what's important and what's not. And that's why we, we're so keen to, to ensure that we stay, uh, we stay close to them. Mm, very good, very good. And then going a little bit more macro about ETFs in the market as a whole, obviously, as you explained, uh, the last 10 years have seen ETFs really evolve, grow. It's democratized the access that a lot of individuals have to invest in a diversified fund. Um, but they're also pulling in huge amounts of capital into an index, which means that people might not be choosing which company in particular they want to invest in. And there have been many discussions about the dangers this can cause kind of systemically. Uh, and now we have the crash that everybody talked about that could be exacerbated by ETFs. No one really knew. How do you see now? What, what sort of is the, um, what has been the final, I don't know, I guess, analysis of, of the impact that, that ETFs has had when there's a big correction? I would say if there is one silver lining and if there's one thing that coronavirus uh, will defeat, uh, is probably the myth around uh, ETFs causing, you know, sort of volatility in the market or contributing to the sell-offs. I think, I think ultimately what the last few weeks have demonstrated is that actually the vast majority of the outflows is, is, is actually from, the manage, from managed funds as opposed to the ETFs, which is not to say that, you know, investors cannot sell ETFs. I mean, they can sell ETFs, they can sell managed funds, or they can um, sell direct shares if they want to sell out of the market. But um, ETFs simply reflect the desire and the risk appetite of, the, of their clients. ETFs do not drive the market. They reflect the market. I think that's really important. And, and as I was saying, I think if there's one thing that coronavirus has, has succeeded in is actually providing some pretty tangible, tangible evidence um, you know, around the fact that ETFs actually do not drive the market, but rather reflect the markets. There's been a lot of innovation and there's been a lot of change in the, in the world of indexing over the past you know, decade in particular. And what we have seen is, is actually an emergence of, of a number of specialized indices. I and mean, we talked about ethical just a moment ago, but um, some of the examples I can quote um, just even in our own range of ETFs would be global robotics and automation uh, ETF or global cybersecurity ETF hack, that's the ASX sticker for it, or global healthcare uh, ETF, um, which trades on the ASX under the ticker drug. We talk about NASDAQ 100 or FTSE 100. There are so many varieties and flavors of indices that have been developed is that right now investors can actually be quite precise um, with what they want to own and what they don't want to own. And that allows investors to really express their views so much more accurately and so much more precisely. And that has really been a key growth engine, I'd say, John, the, probably the, you know, the, mo the most important growth engine 
uh, behind the development of ETFs is that the industry has actually evolved in a significant way and had really responded to the demand. Yeah, look, thanks for that, Alex. It's um, a good insight. With this podcast, I try to educate people about finance. I mean, a lot of my my listeners are are quite sophisticated, but I think uh, helping the broader audience understand, you know, the evolution of finance and the fact that ETFs really are this new, as you said, democratization of access to share markets in a diversified fund. And I think, as you said, it is a difficult, very difficult time. A lot of people are getting ill and the hospitals are overrun. But in terms of the share market, this may be an opportunity for people that have struggled in the last 10 years, looking at asset prices going up and up and up, may have missed out on the property market. But now the shares they've watched go to some crazy multiples might actually be accessible now. And there's some value in the market. And and, and you've explained a whole bunch of options that, that there are at beta shares that people can go and check out with a bit more focus on the market itself. Lots of volatility is the only thing we can be sure about at the moment. Can you give us a market call on, on whether we've seen the lows yet? Today is the 2nd of April, obviously. On the 2nd of May, the answer could be very different. My feeling is that we haven't quite seen the lows just yet, but we're not far from them. And I think what's more important, I mean, the market's already come off a lot. And when I talk to my friends or when I talk to, to our clients, what I say is that what is most important is not trying to time the market. It's not timing the market, but it is time in the market as an investor. I think being invested uh, is very important. Investing over time uh, is very important. So as an individual investor, you're much better off uh, focusing on building a diversified and low-cost portfolio than trying to pick the next winner by buying shares directly or trying to pick an active manager that might have a chance to shoot the lights out. I think what's most important in building wealth is understanding that building wealth is not a short-term game. It does take a while. It's very hard to know when the bottom of the market is going to be. And if anybody tells you otherwise, I mean, they're probably not being honest with themselves or not being honest with, um, you know, sort of with you. Yes, I do feel that there is more volatility in the market to go and we may not have seen the bottom of the market yet, but I don't know for sure and nobody does. But what I do know is that the market today is, is significantly cheaper than what it was just a couple of months ago. And for somebody who is a long-term investor, it's a great time to be getting started. And, and in fact, any time is a great time to be getting started because again, it's time in the market that's most important as opposed to timing that market. Yeah, that's a great, a great catchphrase, that one. And I'll raise you with uh, one that I think my uncle told me, and that is that picking bottoms is a dirty business. So shouldn't you? <laughs> in the spirit of um, financial literacy education, Alex, can you give us a book recommendation, something that uh, people could get started with or even just something that's on your side table? Uh, look, the book that I'm rereading at the moment is called uh, The Most Important Thing which is a really wonderful um, book uh, written by a professional uh, uh, investor, a fellow called Howard Marks. It's a really interesting book because, because even though it's got some technical content in it, the most important thing um, really goes to the psychology of investing. And again, we talked about um, you know, just a moment ago the fact that, that investors quite often or sometimes tend to panic and overreact. And again, some of the academic studies that were done previously are showing that humans are, you know, we're kind of our own worst enemies, basically, uh, when we let emotion uh, get in the way of things and get in the way of interfering with the, with the natural path of compounding returns. 
And, um, you know, that book's a pretty good reminder around, um, you know, sort of some of the um, psychological barriers that we put, uh, put up as investors, you know, sort of ourselves. Great. Thank you for that one, Alex. And, uh, and thank you for all of your insights there. I think that's given people a lot to think about and maybe helped them uh, navigate to negotiate the, the crazy time we're all going through. Indeed. The last sort of thought that I'll probably leave with you and your listeners is really just around importance of keeping an eye on the big picture and keeping an eye on the long term. You know, newspapers will always write about, you know, volatility in the markets. Uh, newspapers will write about recessions. And, you know, we most likely will be going into a recession. I mean, our economy has basically really come to a, to a standstill in many ways or slowed down quite significantly. But that's not necessarily a problem. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, recession is a term. It's a scary term, but it's a technical term which says that the economy had shrunk uh, for two quarters consecutively, um, had reduced in size. There's nothing wrong with that per se, when we are in the middle of a real health crisis. That's not necessarily a problem. And Australia has been in many recessions over time, and the world has been in many recessions over time, but the world bounces back uh, from those recessions. And that's our human resilience, and that's our human nature. We should not be frightened, and we should not be encouraged to go and sell out of our investments, basically, just because the economy in the, is in the recession. And um, you know, Howard Marks, who is the author that I was just mentioning, he talks um, you know, in that book and then has some of his other writings that some of his best investments uh, were made at the times of a recession. Uh, Warren Buffett, who is probably the most uh, well-known investor of our time, has been quoted in saying, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. And again, uh, you know, when you have so much fear in the market, uh, like we have today, uh, it definitely is um, a good reminder that um, you know it is in those times that you can make your best um, you know investments sort of with that long-term perspective in mind. That's a great note to leave it on, Alex. Thanks for all of your insights, and I uh, really appreciate it. Fantastic. Cheers. Great to talk to you.